in cultivating and steadying and nourishing and caring for citta and fundamental awareness. The center of our moral sensitivity, the center of our sense of being, center of our sense of self, this seeming identity that stays with us even though all the names and the qualities change, this presence, this citta. And just recognizing that very often when we cultivate, we tend to use the model of attention being a visual thing. You give attention, you look with your eyes. And maybe attention also means you deduce things. You discover things by deducing, which means this means that, and that leads to that. It's linear. This goes to that, and this goes there. But do, you know, so you, like your eyes can read pages, your eyes can read words. We do that a lot. So it's that primary form of intelligence that comes into our citta. But it's um, it's not very secure or steady because if you notice the eyes, in order to function, they have to keep moving, darting. Or if the eyes are still steady, then the visual impressions start to go fuzzy and fade out. The eyes have to keep moving subtly. To, to maintain, to get visual impressions of things. They operate by moving. Mm. Yeah. And then also, your eyes can only see what's directly in front of you. And, and of course, uh, because of this visual consciousness is so predominant in human beings, uh, we don't really use our sense of smell much or taste much, limited compared with our eyes. All of the world that we relate to is primarily a visual one we read words and even more nowadays than say in pre-technological times yeah in urban civilized conditions most of our input visual signs symbols slogans coming in often deluge of them yeah so with all that they contain, which generally is not that wholesome, it floods in. You know. And so, you know, and then when you try to meditate, you know, watching your breathing or watching the object, often your mind is so tired of going to that mode of attention. They think, oh, you know, it's just another thing I have to focus on. It's why it's so helpful to realize this whole idea of watching the mind is really just a, a metaphor. The Buddha didn't even use it, didn't even talk about watching. He said knowing, aware of. And uh, you can recognize the Buddha being a, a forest dweller with no words, no signs, no tablets, no screens, no lights. Primarily, the intelligence is global, it's hearing, feeling primarily it's embodied because to stay in the wilderness in the jungle you have to be alert globally all round and it's through your skin you sense atmospheres warmth pressure and your skin prickles when it hears certain impressions come into your 
nervous system, your skin prickles, your nervous system it becomes agitated. And it gives danger signals, and it gives comfort signals, it gives sense so you can relax now. And this is much more the kind of uh, model of awareness that would be pertinent to the Buddha and the forest dwellers. And it's global. It's no particular direction from everywhere. It's whatever touches the skin behind you, around you, above you. you So a focal point then is not so much a focal point of attention on a particular object. Our focal point is attention on what we're stirred by. And first modality is to attend to what you're comforted and steadied by. Because, you know, often with this sensory overload through the eyes, people are often pretty scrambled. And a lot about the material that we're receiving is about what we call virtual reality. Tomorrow, the other side of the world, what should be, what could be, what we worry about, what we're promised. There's nothing actually directly there. They're all just possibilities and messages of somewhere else. So we have a massive amount of reality that is virtual, not directly experienced. You'd be sitting in your log cabin in, I don't know, Alaska or somewhere, and completely flooded with wars and elections and fashions and sport all over the place. <laughs> you know, and getting stirred up by all. And yet, where, where am I? And we don't know where we are, because the mind has no fixed boundaries, there's no fixed location. It's located wherever you're stirred, wherever you're excited, where you're where you directly feel something, that's where you are. So and wherever you directly feel something, that's where you are. Now if you're directly feeling the craziness of the world, that's where you are. <laughs> and you'll respond in accordance with that probably trying to defend yourself from it, trying to trying to make sense of it, trying to not feel it, trying to numb out from it because you can't manage it all. So there's this stirring of being trapped in a, in a world of, of uh, suffering, lamentation, pain, grief, despair. Because <laughs> that's the story as it always has been. Now, so then we don't really focus really on what, first of all, what stabilizes and what gladdens. And this is where the path begins. You know, now if you read any book on Buddhism, you might see the path begins with right view, so forth. That's true. But actually the path begins when the Buddha walks into your heart. That's where it begins. The time, the moment where the Buddha walks into your heart, even for a moment, even puts a finger in there, touches it, goes, hey, that's where it begins, because <laughs> that's the arising of faith. Yeah. So it begins right there. And in, in the canon, uh, you know, we have this symbol the Buddha walks in into this deer park, and the five former disciples who didn't want to see him thought he'd given up, suddenly sprang to their feet and said, Oh, oh, this is different. That's where the path begins. That moment when something touches you, you're going to light up. Hey, this is different. I don't know what it is, but I light up for it. And that's not just an idea. It comes into your body. You feel yourself lifted. And so that's the beginning. 
where whole body awareness lights up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not just an idea. The idea may trigger that, of course. So we may, in fact, remember things, qualities, impressions that do light, light us up, and then we get that feeling of vigor coming into the body and brighten for a moment the weights off your back. Yeah. That's where it begins. This is where the, in the Eightfold Path begins there and your topic is well how do you continue that having put your foot on that having started out on that how do you continue that because now you have to walk you can't just sit there the Buddha touches you you've got to get up and walk through the world right how do you keep that with you how do you keep that Buddha with you while you're walking through yeah. so these are kind of like it's a global thing because of course the world is both your memories your responsibilities your wishes, your anxieties your hopes, your humour your friends um, and everything you know and of course it, you know it's, it's everything really that, that touches you how do you walk through that well a certain guidance is needed um, first of all, we talk about this quality called deep attention or wise attention, which begins to recognize, you know, in all of this stuff that's happening, what's really the, the significant bit that affects me? Where am I touched? You know, in this world of shapes and smells and odors and sounds and messages and signals and yes and no and him and her and that and this, what is the bit that touches me? And it could be just overwhelmed. Too much. Because when you get it, that thing happens again. You know, that moment of being touched, you hit the point. It may not be the point you wanted to hit, but it, it touched you. You felt, I can't manage. I can't do uh, it. Uh, overwhelmed. Okay. Now, that you may not think that's very good news. <laughs> How do you keep going? when the world keeps doing this to you, going strange. and um, uh, First, there's a sense of really knowing directly what's happening you know, and being able to acknowledge that. And then also, okay, I'm feeling overwhelmed, but once you name it, then there's a certain stability in that. Okay, you know what, you, you're telling the truth. And truth is the primary ground. So we say, okay, I'm feeling overwhelmed. And then almost immediately a sense has to be, well, where's the ground? Where's my feet? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then re-establishing that central axis, both physical and metaphorical and psychological. Mm-hmm. Here we are, I'm here. And then you cultivate these particular four properties of what's called Sampajanya. Now, You've all heard of sati, mindfulness. I imagine you might have heard of sati sampajanya, sometimes trained as mindfulness and full awareness or mindfulness and clear comprehension. And the word sampajanya means direct knowing, fully directly knowing. And you can translate it in a number of ways. Sati is like stabilizes. It puts you onto something. It stays with something. So it's a, like a pin. It stabilizes you. It's there. 
creates a focus for attention. Sampajanya moves around that. Just like the spine and the rest of the body, the spine in this case of the Dhamma is mindfulness, of our attention is mindfulness, and around it, Sampajanya is like the body that can rotate, move around without losing touch with the spine. And yeah, so this is really helpful. And the particular qualities of Sampajanya are first of all, it, it has the sense of what is purposeful. What's the purpose? What am I trying to do? Uh, what's the purpose? And fundamentally, to really establish the right purpose has to be to purify the mind. Or you could say to relinquish unwholesome states. Or you could say to cause wholesome states to arise. Or you could say to liberate the mind from clinging. Or, yeah. But this is the purpose. It's not to get things done. It's not to be a success. It's not to be able to understand what everybody else is doing. It's not about being able to fix my uncle or my cousin or somebody else. Though that may happen, but your fundamental purpose in Dhamma practice is to purify the mind so it's liberated from suffering. So you get that one. In this situation, you know, this seems unpleasant, this seems unfair, people are not being very pleasant to me or agreeable. I feel I want to fight back. What purifies the mind now? Purpose. Okay, we'll just relinquish the aversion, the ill will, stand your ground, be quiet, peaceful, stable, don't get knocked around. Mm-hmm. So it's maintaining that sense of simplicity and refusal to participate in unwholesome actions, even if other people are goading you into it. You don't pick up you know, the inclination to argue or to fight, or to complain, or to prove you're better. This is the kind of stuff that people do. You don't do any of that. Purpose. Really important to keep maintaining one's sense of purpose. Because we're often presented as if we have so many things we could do in our life. You know, you could fly here. You could learn this. You could be good at this. Don't waste an opportunity. Get one of these. If you do this, you'll be like that. And everybody, you'll get happy, happy in the future. Very often we're presented with a huge amount of possibilities, but they're all the wrong possibilities. They don't lead to the end of suffering. The right possibility is only one right possibility. Let go of the unwholesome, pick up the wholesome, purify the mind. Second quality of Sampajanya, it can be in any order actually. Second quality is suitable. Am I bearing in mind something that is suitable? It seems, you know, is it? Does it give? Does it give skill? Does it cause skillful states to arise? This is very helpful in terms of meditation practice, for example, where there may be many useful meditation themes and topics but actually the one that works for you now is this one and so you have to find out what is suitable to give your attention to and the suitability is associated with it fits it's like it's comfortable 
It's not something you're straining for. Something you can manage. It can be quite simple because it doesn't have to be anything other than that which is suitable and has the right purpose. And you can you can look at this on a broad level. What kind of things are suitable to give your attention to? Um, myself nowadays, I probably might look at the news for five minutes twice a day. More than that, it's just not suitable. I get I get the picture. I don't need to get into all the views, opinions, analysis, comments, sub comments, and so forth. I don't need that. Just a bit of news, who knows how true it is anyway, but get a rough idea of what's going on. Uh, and meanwhile, I'm here, I'm with the people I'm with, that's more suitable. <laughs> more suitable to give attention to long-term Dharma practitioners and things where I can actually have some input that's useful. There's no point in just looking at stuff that you can't do anything about. Suitable. Generally, if I'm in a city, I don't bother to look at things very much because most stuff in cities isn't worth my attention. It's not worth it. And it's just stuff. <laughs> you know, it's not worth not worth putting into your heart. When you recognise everything you give attention to is going to land in you and affect you, and this is precious, you know. Another aspect of Sampajanya is... Um, Context or domain. So this means your your awareness is able to not just focus on a point, but focus on an entire dimension, domain. Say, say we're we're travelling together, six of us travelling together. Then I have an awareness of what the other five people are doing. So we get, we're staying together as a group. I'm not just focusing on where I'm going, what's in my mind. I'm focusing on the aware of the other five people and how they're, how they're getting on. I'm also aware of the time. So you're aware of, aware of the domain, the whole context that you're living in. Now, you could say if I'm being really mindful, I'd just be aware of my feet walking along the pavement in order to get to, the, to where I'm going. That's true. That would be mindful. But it wouldn't be very much Sampajanya in it because the suitable thing is to be aware of the traffic around you, uh, the other people you're travelling with, the time and so forth. So you've got a much more global, holistic awareness. And this helps to, to moderate your practice because if you're insisting on mindfulness being a moment-by-moment awareness of a sensation, um, that's not going to get you very far down down the main street of your town without hitting something. <laughs> so this both frees you up to be much more flexible in terms of your speed, where you go, what directions you take, even what attitudes you have. It also makes you more responsible within the context. And this is um, something that you know is to be cultivated because people tend to have this tunnel vision, you know, 
people standing, like in the monastery, often find people standing doorways talking because when they come to the door, they see the person, they open the door, there's the person on the other side of the door. They start talking to them because they see the person on the other side of the door. They open the door, oh, hello. Well, actually, the doorway is for people to walk through. (laughs) So not to stand in and have a conversation in. So if you're a bit contextually aware, you don't just see the person you want to talk to and get into your conversation. You see the person you want to talk to. You're also aware, I'm in a doorway. <laughs> Let's move into a space where we can have a reasonable discussion. Yeah. And recognise that somebody else over there also wants to talk. Let's invite him or her in, you know, or maybe she's in trouble. So let's forget our conversation and go and focus on them. So you've got a contextual awareness. And the last element of Sambhajana is called non-delusion. It means essentially that you understand whatever occurs, whatever occurs is changeable, is not self, is not solid, is not substantial, is not complete in itself. It's unsatisfactory and it's not complete in itself. Everything that occurs which we take to be you and me and this and that, is really just a moment changing. There's nothing solid in any of it. And this means you don't linger in impressions. You keep clean. It's astonishing you know, people can spend their whole lives storing up impressions of other people and events that happened years ago, and it's a known fact that memory is inaccurate. So you remember something 20 years ago, happened 20 years ago, every time you remember it, your mind changes it a little bit. Just like picking up a ripe tomato, ripe tomato. Every time you squeeze it, it gets squashed. Memory's like that. Every time you pick it up, you squash it a little bit. You distort it in accordance with you know, the fear or the joy or the whatever you felt at that time, you distort it a little bit more. So it becomes more and more in line with your emotional attitude right now. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, mate, what does that mean? It means that by the end of your life, you've got your head is full of squashed tomatoes <laughs> that are all representations of your regret, your guilt things you haven't resolved in yourself, irritations, other people let you down, bitter memories. Every time you pick them up, your bitter memory gets more bitter. Every time you pick it up, your regret gets more deep. Every time you pick it up, your worry gets more acute. Until until eventually you get a lifetime creating a storehouse of, of, of material that's stuck in your mind because you weren't able to See it as just change, released, whatever happens. And how do you get that sense of the ephemeral, transient nature experience? Your attention has to rest back in receptivity and feel, let yourself feel things 
rather like the hand. I don't close on it. Let yourself be touched. I don't close on it. Don't grasp it. Don't make it final. Don't make it myself. Don't make it you. Don't make it him. Don't make it them. Just make it as unpleasant, pleasant, difficult, strange. That's true. Hmm? That's true. That's actually true. That's what the skin of your mind feels. So we don't create people. We don't create history. We don't create them. They don't stain us. They don't weigh us down. Then we become free. Hmm? This is the way to operate. Someone who operates in accordance with these uh, four qualities of Sampajanya, even though in a way their awareness is receiving things from many different directions, and perhaps feeding things from many directions, they don't lose their spine. They don't lose the centre. Because whatever occurs is understood as changeable. The sense of the purpose has remained central. The spine, the, the centre of our attention is purify, let go, release, bring up the wholesome purpose of our life. Our attention does not go out to what's not necessary. We manage it in a suitable way that's comfortable, steady, reliable, manageable. And we're aware in an undiluted way of what's happening in this life. This is the way you stay with the Eightfold Path. You stay with the middle way. And this life, actually, in this way, is seen as more like a... You carry this thread of life through this multifaceted experience of samsara that's operating around trying to cling and hold you. It's like you're moving through a jungle that's trying to trap you, catch you, delude you, confuse you. You just keep moving through that jungle till you come to the end of the jungle. And that's Nibbana. Mm. So I'll offer this for your consideration this evening, or this morning, or this afternoon, depending on how it seems to you.